Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So the thing that's cool about self-compassion is it's actually a practice. Like it is a thing you can do and get better at. The trick, of course, is that you actually have to do it. You can't just think about it, which stinks because I love sitting around thinking about stuff. It's so much easier than actually doing it. That was Carla Nomberg on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We're proud to be sponsored by Praxis, the premier provider of continuing education training for mental health professionals. Right now, Praxis is offering both virtual and in-person trainings. And for the virtual trainings, they have both live and on-demand courses. Praxis is our go-to for evidence-based CE trainings, and they're especially known for their ACT trainings. 
Some of the best expert peer-reviewed ACT trainers offer courses with Praxis. Check out their current offerings at praxiscet.com, or you can link to them through our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and you can get a discount on live training events if you use the code OFFTHECLOCK. Debbie and I are here to introduce an episode about self-compassion for parents. We've actually done another episode on self-compassion for parents. It was episode 113 with Susan Pollock, but I was really excited to do this topic again, but from a totally different perspective. So I got to meet with author and social worker Carla Nomberg, who's actually been on our podcast before. She was on for episode 149 on how to stop losing your temper with your kids And she's back with her latest book. And I want to preface before I even tell the title um, by letting you all know that there is a good amount of swearing in this book because Carla likes to swear. And I think it's really funny. So I'll pause. And if you need to turn this off because there are sensitive ears in the room, (laughs) go ahead and do so. The title of the book is You're Not a Shitty Parent, How to Practice Self-Compassion and Give Yourself a Break. And This book comes out on September 27th, so we're airing this episode before it hits shelves, but you can pre-order through your local independent bookstores or anywhere else, and yeah, get ready to laugh a lot and learn how to feel better about yourself as parent. Debbie, what did you think about this episode? Well, first of all, I love the dynamic between you and Carla because you had so much fun together. You were laughing. There were a few little moments of spicy language, but I think to bring some humor to the topic of parenting, which can sometimes be, you know, challenging, difficult. It was just a really fun conversation. I really enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, she's become one of my favorite authors and speakers about parenthood because she is so funny. And I do think that parenting can feel so heavy. So anytime you can inject some humor and really her books are are laugh out loud funny. So I highly recommend them. So one of the things that I think about a lot, and I think she talks about this quite a bit, is this idea of self stories and how we get into some narratives about ourselves. You know, I'm good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, smart, not smart. We get into this around our bodies, all kinds of different areas of life. And I think parenting is no exception. You know, sometimes we feel like I'm a quote bad parent. And sometimes we think, oh, I'm a great parent. And it's like, what is all that? You know, we get into this really evaluative mode when it comes to parenting. And I just like the idea that maybe we don't have to do that. It's like, you're just a parent, you know, you're going to have your good days and your bad days. How do you even define what's a good parent and a bad parent? I read an article recently, we can link to it on our show notes, about, it was out of the Cleveland Clinic, and it was about the difference between body positivity and body neutrality, and I think it's very similar here. So, you know, in reaction to a lot of fat shaming and, you know, body image issues, there was this body positivity movement where it's like, oh, you should feel really good about your body and be grateful for it and have positive thoughts about your body. But for some people, that's not really going to land because they might sometimes get self-critical about their body or there's even a little bit of value judgment within that, right? And so this idea of body neutrality is it's like, is your body good or not good? It's like, well, it's just your body. It's sort of neutral. It's just doing its thing. You know, you might have a disability, your body might change over the course of time. And I think if you get caught up in those evaluations on either side, you end up getting stuck in self-story, right? And so it's like, can we just 
step out of that a bit. And I actually think that's what Carla is kind of getting at here with parenting as well. It's like, can you just, you know, it's like, you're just parenting and maybe we don't need to be so focused on like, oh, I'm a terrible parent or, oh, I'm a great parent. It's like, I'm just doing my best here, people. And that to me is that she talks a lot about curiosity and just being more self-compassionate as a parent. This is fairly off topic, but Debbie, as you're talking, I'm thinking back to an episode that I did on yoga for all, where we talked a lot about body as object versus body as process. And it's almost like you could apply the same idea to parenting, you know, parenting as a thing that we do and that we should be evaluated for versus a lifelong process. And so by thinking about it as a process, we don't have to get so hooked on the evaluation piece, but more on the function and how we're feeling and where we want to be going with it. And interestingly, I love that you're raising this point because I think there, there was this moment in our conversation where Carla had said something to the effect of that she generally feels good about her parenting. And I, I sort of fed that back and said, you know, I, it's so great that you feel good as a parent. And she said, hold on, hold on. Sometimes I feel great. Sometimes I feel terrible and all of it's okay. And I actually love that she called me out on um, sort of getting stuck on her evaluation of herself because I think that is something that we all need to be working on. It's so natural for our mind to want to label good and bad. And so often in so many of the important roles in our life, that actually is counterproductive. Yeah. And I've seen so many clients over the years, but also friends and family members who can just really be hard on themselves about their parenting or who can get perfectionistic about it. And I love that Carla offers some actual practical suggestions and exercises for ways that you can just ease up a bit on that pressure and be a little bit kinder towards yourself as you do this really important and hard, you know, work of parenting. Yeah. So listen through to the end because she actually shares some of her favorite practices and she does it in such a human, authentic, messy, real life kind of way, which kind of gives you some insight into how you in your own messy, real life kind of way can incorporate some of these helpful practices. So we hope you get a lot out of this episode. I'm here with Carla Nomberg. Carla is a clinical social worker, mom, and author of five parenting books, including the best-selling How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Kids, which we interviewed Carla for on episode 149. And I'd like to mention that when we recorded, it was the front end of the pandemic. The episode was released in July of 2020. So all of us parents, including myself, were really in need of advice for not losing our minds with our kids. And I have to say that I've really incorporated a lot of the strategies I learned from that book and continue to use them. But I'm delighted that Carla is back to discuss her latest book, You're Not a Shitty Parent, How to Practice Self-Compassion and Give Yourself a Break. Welcome, Carla. Hi, Yael. I'm so happy to be back and chatting with you. I wanted to start with a question about how to stop losing your shit with your kids because it became a bestseller. And I wonder if you have any insights as to why this book struck such a chord with parents. Oh, um. Yeah, I think it's because, look, it's something we all struggle with, myself included, right? So it's a really, really common challenge. And I think that, um, you know, I intentionally used a swear word in the title. It wasn't just like, ha ha. Um, I mean, it was that because I like to crack myself up. But also, I, I was really aware of how I feel when I read parenting books that leave me judging myself. And 
I've read a lot of parenting books with amazing advice, really wise, compassionate, thoughtful, useful advice. And I end up coming away from the book feeling like I'm totally screwing up parenting, right? And I don't, I, I don't think the authors intend that at all. And I actually had a friend who read one of my early non-sweary books and told me that she felt worse about her parenting after she read it. And I was horrified. And I was like, please go burn this book and never read it again. So, and I think it's true for every parenting author. Um, and I know you have a book coming out, so we're going to talk about that. But I know we're all, everybody who writes a parenting book really comes at it, I have to believe, from a place of love and compassion and wanting to help other parents and make parenting easier. And I think an inadvertent side effect of it is that because so many of us parents are already judging ourselves, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, we come away with these from these books judging ourselves even worse, right? And so I think one of the reasons my book resonated is because right up the bat from the title, I'm hoping parents will know that this is not a book that is intended to leave them feeling worse off than they already do, right? That's I just wanted them to feel like, hey, we're going to sit down and talk about this thing that we all know we're all doing right? I'm just assuming that every parent is losing their shit with their kids, myself included. Let's just talk about it in a real authentic way. Let's try to be a little funny about it because, oh my gosh, if we can't laugh at parenting, we're all just screwed, right? Because it's so ridiculous. Um, And I think it, I tried to be as inclusive as possible in the book. And I also tried to just be funny and honest and real and give parents advice that hopefully they can actually use because there's a lot of parenting advice out there that's awesome and totally impossible, just given the logistics of daily life. We just can't freaking do it. So hopefully that's why. I don't know. What do you think? Why do you think it worked? <laughs> I think I, I agree with all of that. I I love the swearing in the title. I do think that so I could not agree more that so many parenting books out there are so well intended, but leave you feeling, well, first of all, overwhelmed. How am I going to do this? And second of all, like I, I really am screwing up and yours is just so human and authentic. And you really have such a way of showing the messiness of parenting life and, and sort of making it lovely and approachable and more acceptable to kind of be be real. I love it. <laughs> acceptable to be a hot mess, which we all are. Yes. Okay, let's just say it. Well, I I also just wanted to ask this question because you addressed this in your introduction of the of the new book. Um, but the response to how to stop losing your shit with your kids is what led to this new book. And you know, the res- the book came out during the did it come out during the pandemic or right before? It came out the fall before the pandemic. So I mean, yeah, I think part of the reason it sold well is because, you know, six months later, we're all stuck at home with our kids trying to manage our jobs and manage their online schooling and manage our own anxiety and everybody's mental health. And is it okay to touch the bananas or do we need to leave them sitting on the porch for three days? And like, it was a terrifying time. And even if we weren't all trapped in our houses, unable to reach out to our support network, you know, just having your kids at home and trying to manage school, it was was too much. We're all losing our shit. So yes, the book came out just before the pandemic hit. And you write in the introduction that, you know, right after the pandemic hit, you know, everybody was contacting you to have you come on the podcast and be interviewed for articles about, you know, helping guide parents through this whole, you know, shitstorm that was happening that we couldn't escape. And what you said is, you know, a lot of the 
advice that you were giving felt like n- not quite right. And, and you ended up giving the advice that you really dive into in this new book. So I, I wonder if you can sort of talk us through how, how this book came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So part of it is what happened during the pandemic, but part of it was has to back up to my initial learning about self-compassion. So Yael, you and I are in very similar professions. I'm a social worker. You're a psychologist. I don't know about you, but I went through, let's see, four years of undergrad studying psychology. I got a master's degree in social work, and then I went back and got a doctorate in social work. And then I was in practice for many years. And not once during that entire time did I ever hear the phrase self-compassion. And that's not a diss on my teachers, right? It's not because they were withholding information or the people I was studying with weren't telling me stuff. It just wasn't a practice that was really out in the world that we were talking about, at least not in Western traditional society. Um, And it wasn't until sort of two things happened at once. First, uh, a number of different you know scholars, researchers, practitioners in the United States um, started talking about it, researching it, really writing about it. Um, and also I was losing my shit with my kids to such an extent and with such great frequency that I got over my own extremely judgmental attitude towards mindfulness and meditation and signed up for a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which I write about in that book. But there was, you know, I learned about self-compassion. And then the first time I learned about it, I was like, so this is a total crock of shit. Let's get back to the good stuff that's actually going to help me with parenting. Um, but then I was like, I, I clearly don't know what I'm doing. So maybe I should listen to these people who have been studying this for a long time. And so I started practicing self-compassion in some of the ways we can talk about in a minute. And I had this moment. So I think my daughters were five and six years old. I have two daughters and now they're 12 and 13. So this was like six, seven years ago um, where we're in the kitchen. It's a Friday afternoon and they were sort of playing with Legos or stickers or something. And I was preparing dinner and my husband was on his way home from work And Willie Nelson was playing in the background, which always just puts me in a good mood. And all of a sudden, totally unbidden, this thought pops into my mind out of the blue. I thought, oh, I'm a pretty good mother. And it was such a shocking thought that I literally dropped the knife and kind of like squeaked like, what what just happened? And then it was like this really weird moment because not only did I think this thought that I don't think I had thought once in my entire six years of parenting, how sad is that? But it was so shocking for me that I dropped a freaking knife on the floor, almost hit my toe. And then I had to unpack, like unpack that moment. Why? Because I'm a social worker and we say things like unpack the moment. Um, I had to like really explore how had I gone for so long and never thought of myself as a good mother? And why was it so freaking shocking to me? And where did that thought come from? So I started to realize it came from this place of self-compassion and that I had been practicing self-compassion in ways we'll discuss in a moment for several months at that point. And it led to this moment where all of a sudden I could actually spontaneously think of myself as a good mother. And I will tell you now, I actually think I'm a good mother. Does it mean I'm a perfect mother? No. Does it mean I get everything right all the time? No. Does it mean I never lose my shit with my kids? (laughs) No. But, and does it mean that I'm any better than any other parent out there? Absolutely not. What it does mean is that I've learned how to stop beating myself up for my imperfections and embrace the ways in which I am showing up for my kids. And oh my gosh, yeah, parenting is so much easier and more fun 
when you're not shitting all over yourself all the time, in addition to all the regular life challenges of parenting. Okay, so then we flash forward to this moment in the pandemic when people are reaching out to me and saying, okay, well, like parents are a mess. How do they stop losing their shit with their kids when they're stuck inside with them all the time? I remember specifically a journalist reaching out to me wanting to have a conversation about how to work full time and have an infant and a two-year-old at home and not lose your shit. And I wrote back to him and said, I literally have no advice for you. I don't know how to do this. I, I have no suggestions for how a person is supposed to work at home. I think they had a partner who was also working with two little ones and not lose it. It's, it's just not possible. It's like asking me how to defy gravity. I don't know how to do that because nothing about work or child rearing or parenting or being a human being on this earth is set up to manage that. Um, and, you know, a lot of advice in the book about get, getting sleep and reaching out to your support system and getting time away from your kids, which is such an important way to not lose your temper with them. It, it was like, well, I can say this to you, but you can't actually do much of this. And so that's when I started thinking about self-compassion and how deeply, deeply important it is to cut ourselves so much slack in these hard moments of parenting, many of which are actually quite impossible. So that's where it came from. That's the long story. Yeah. Well, in our conversation in episode 149, we talked a lot about self-compassion and you offered me a lot of compassion because I was sharing that my, at the time, three-year-old was, it, it was just an impossible situation because he was home all the time. I never got a break from him. I was trying to work. And, you know, it, it really is one of these strategies that I don't want to say it's foolproof, but it's just, it's so much more available than many of the other strategies that we get in the parenting world. And being able to cut yourself some slack, give yourself some grace, be kind to yourself when things are impossible or you're just not having a good day or showing up as your best self is so useful. So um, let's talk about, well, I literally wrote in the margins of your new book, I love you, Carla. And my outpouring of love was prompted by the fact that your take on mindfulness is expressed so differently than many of the folks in the mindfulness world. You're like the unlikely Zen superhero. And I'll share the quote from your book that- <laughs> That's my new tagline. I'm an unlikely Zen superhero, which is hilarious because I'm like the least Zen person ever, but please carry on. Yeah, don't stop. I'm loving where this conversation is going. <laughs> But the quote is just so reflective of how you talk in real life, too, which is, and, and the quote goes as follows. The first time I was introduced to self-compassion, I nearly burst out laughing when the instructor in the mindfulness class I was taking suggested sending ourselves happy wishes. I mean, who comes up with this crap? <laughs> and I just love that. Um, but compassion won you over. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about what self-compassion is and what it isn't. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about this. First of all, I, I do want to send a shout out to specifically Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer. There are, and, and actually Susan Pollock too. There are a lot yeah, of amazing people. Yeah, we've had people. all three of them on the podcast and we'll link to their episodes in our oh, show notes. You're like a superstar with this podcast. So these are the folks who have really been pioneers in the West in the research and writing around self-compassion. And um, any work I do is is really because of the work they've done. And so I'm very grateful to all of them and all the other researchers and authors and practitioners of self-compassion because I did not come up with this stuff myself. I just added a lot more swear words to it. Um, so look, when I first started learning about compassion, I was like, happy wishes? Like, what is that? I don't, how, huh? And 
you know, I really had to dive into it. And, and what I started to understand is that ha- compassion isn't just like thinking happy thoughts, right? I, I don't really know what that means or how it's useful. And it's not being nice to yourself. Like, I feel like being nice is a thing we do. I'm sort of making this up right now, Yell, but I've been trying to struggle with like, what is the difference between being nice and being kind? And I think being nice is a thing you do when you want to make people feel good, right? It's like, I just want to make this situation okay, so I'm going to say something nice. And I'm all about feeling good, right? And if I can do something that helps someone else feel better, that's like a good thing, right? But the problem with being nice, I'm using air quotes, which I realize our listeners can't see because they're (laughs) listening. So I'm using my air quotes. The problem with being nice to yourself in an attempt to make yourself feel good is that it's kind of like saying to yourself, it's not okay to feel bad, right? And parenting feels so bad so often that if we're saying to ourselves, hey, self, it's not okay to feel bad, then we're kind of saying, hey, self, you're screwing this up somehow because you shouldn't be feeling bad. And the truth is, parenting feels bad whether or not we're doing it right, because that's life, right? I mean, it's also parenting also feels joyous and amazing. And I, I love being a parent, but it's also really hard. It's both. Okay. So then I was like, okay, so if compassion isn't about being nice to yourself, and it's not about happy wishes, what is it? And I think it's it's two parts, again, based on work of Neff and Germer and all the awesome people. It's noticing when you're suffering. So like acknowledging it. Oh, I'm having a really hard, awful moment um, for whatever reason. And then it's choosing how you're going to respond to your suffering. Um, and so are you going to respond by telling yourself that you suck and, um, you know, a better parent wouldn't be in this situation in the first place? Or are you going to respond to your suffering by remembering that parenting is really hard for everyone and that just because something is hard, that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. And even if you are doing it wrong, it's okay because that's part of being a human being on this planet. And are you going to try to find ways to kind of comfort and take care of yourself? And again, comforting isn't about saying you have to feel better. It's just about saying that you're feeling bad and maybe you could treat yourself nicely. So. The short version is I think self-compassion is about noticing when you're feeling like crap and being kind to yourself in response. Self-compassion is kind of the opposite or is is the treatment for something that you have diagnostically labeled shitty parent syndrome. <laughs> Which I, I made that it's up, not, by the way. It's not I totally the DSM made that up. yet. <laughs> um, oddly, the DSM, which for people who don't know, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that kind of lists all the psychiatric disorders and mental illnesses. Oddly, they haven't called me to discuss this yet, the committee that writes that book. I don't know why. So yeah, if you know the committee, I think we should get it in there. The next edition. Yes, all right. So so help all of us uh, who are waiting for the DSM to now include shitty parent syndrome to understand what is shitty parent syndrome? How, how do we know if we should be diagnosed with it? Um, <laughs> my kid is knocking on the door. As I'm doing this, and you know why? Yell, she's knocking on the door. The podcast, dude. Yell, do you want to come and say hi to Yell? Okay. Hi, Rita. I love you. You just saw her. Okay. Yell, I'm so sorry. We're in the middle of the podcast. Can you go away now? Did you approve it? Yes. Okay. Don't knock again. Find daddy. I'm so sorry. You should no totally worries. leave part of that into the podcast because I think it would be very real if people were like, this is the part where Carla's daughter appears in the middle of the podcast to ask for an approve an app. Oh my gosh. What? Okay. Sorry. What were we talking about? We're talking about shitty parent syndrome. Okay. Yes. So, so how, how should I know if I meet criteria for shitty parent syndrome? Okay. So my guess 
is that if you are a parent raising children in this world today, uh, and you spend any amount of time on social media or reading parenting articles that say things like top four ways, you know, you're raising a narcissistic psychopath or top four things parents who raise amazing kids do. And you're probably not doing right. We've all seen these headlines. So if you're a parent in this world, getting flooded with information like this, you probably have experienced shitty parent syndrome at some point, whether or not you have the full blown disorder, you know, that remains to be seen. Also, this is not a real disorder, but a thing I made up, let's remember that. But the I just, you know, wanted to like give a name to this thing that so many of us are struggling with. And if you want me to sound a little more official about this thing I've totally made up, um, I would say it's the thought, belief, or perception that you're a shitty parent. How's that for deep thoughts? Um, look, and I think the thing that really stinks about shitty parent syndrome is first of all, it feels like crap because it feels really bad to think awful thoughts about yourself all day. But secondly, I think it leaves us feeling really confused and insecure about how to parent. Because if you think you're really bad at doing something, and then there's this voice in your head constantly reinforcing that, and then you're getting advice and information from communities and people that you are not connected to, right? So like I can tell you how French parents are better than us. And I can tell you how like Asian parents are better than I am. And I can tell you how parents who live in a completely different community with completely different resources and challenges and situations are so much better than I am. But how does all, all that tells me is that I'm doing everything wrong. It doesn't tell me how to do anything better. And so I, the point of all this is that I think if you're a parent in today's world, you probably know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, can you please write a book about how you did that? Because that's a book I want to read, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's, I mean, what, what always strikes me as interesting, and you write about this in your book, is how often we'll say to somebody else, like, ah, I'm such a crappy parent, or my, my kid is screwed because I did X, Y, or Z. And I think it's intended as a connecting tool, but we say it so often that we start to kind of buy into it. Oh, a hundred percent, right? This is a way, one of the most powerful ways that parents connect. And I'm going to go ahead and say mothers here because A, I am a mother and I hang out with a lot of mothers. Um, and I do think there's a gender divide in how people connect with other people. Having said that to all the dads out there, if I'm wrong, if you think that this is also a dad thing as well, shoot me a note. Let me know. Like I, I really want to hear your voices because I think dad's voices aren't in this conversation as much as we need them to be. Yeah. Having said that for sure, a thing moms and I think many parents do is we throw ourselves under the bus as a way to connect with other parents. Like, you know, it's a way of letting other parents know, I don't think I'm better than you. I'm not judging you. Um, it, and it is kind of this powerful point of connection. It's also a really problematic one because, again, it's it's setting the stage for, well, again, yeah, the more we say something, like you just noted, the more we repeat something to ourselves, the more we listen to it, the more we kind of come to believe it, whether or not it's true or accurate. And the other thing is that when we are not when we are showing up for our, our fellow parents by throwing ourselves under the bus, we're not really creating a space for any of us to feel okay about parenting. Like if I show up and tell you a bunch of stories about what a crap parent I am, you there's no space for you to show up and say, you know what? I actually kind of nailed parenting today because it's going to make you look like a jerk, right? And so I have friends who have started posting on Facebook, like I had a total parenting win. 
I did this thing. It was creative. I connected with my kids. It felt really good. And I will tell you five years ago when I was in a worse place about parenting, I would have been like, F that person. I don't want to hear that because that's about my own insecurities. Right. And now that I'm in a more settled place in my parenting, I'm like, how many times can I hit that love button on your post? Because I want to hear more parents talking about those moments when we nailed parenting or I want more space for parents to say, I totally screwed this up and that's okay. I'm still a good parent. Right. So both. Yeah. Well, and that's why I like how you started our interview with saying, you know, that, you know, you're a good parent. You're not a perfect parent. You still screw up plenty of the time, but that you feel solid in, in sort of a more zoomed out way about, about your parenting. And and a huge part of that is self-compassion that you can sort of make space for the oops moments and the moments where you didn't show up as your best parenting self. Absolutely. And I, so my, my daughters are both, uh, in two weeks, they're going to both be starting seventh and eighth grade. So we're like neck deep in puberty and middle school and all the things. And I've got one more year till my big one goes off to high school. And so there are definitely moments where I don't feel grounded at all. Not zoomed up close, not zoomed out. (laughs) I I'm like doubting every decision I've made. And those are the moments when I can turn to self-compassion because that's my solid ground, right? When I'm questioning, oh my God, should I already have this kid signed up for some kind of college advisor? I hear eighth graders are doing that and do they need to be in more sports? And did I say the wrong thing? And blah, That's when I come back and remind myself, hey, this stuff is legitimately confusing. It's not just me. It's not that there's something wrong with my judgment or my parenting style or whatever it is like this is legitimately hard stuff with really challenging choices and no clear outcome Mm. um and so again self-compassion comes back brings me back to this place where i can kind of calm down and not freak out which is amazing because i'm so good at freaking out yell it's like this i'm it's it's really one of my hidden talents but it's not so hidden as my family would tell you um i'm that when I want to freak out about something that's actually happening in the moment or something that may or may not ever happen, uh, self-compassion is the practice that kind of calms me down and brings me back to solid ground. Okay. So can, can I have you walk through this Buddhist metaphor of pain versus suffering, the first arrow versus the second arrow? Yeah. So I think Buddhist psychology is some of the most contains some of the most brilliant insights I've ever heard into the way sort of the human mind and heart and soul and behavior work. And I am not in any by any stretch of the imagination an expert in it, but I, I have taken bits of wisdom from my studies over the years. So here's how I think about um, the first and second arrow story from the Buddha. And again, my apologies to folks from the Buddhist community who uh, will listen to this story and think I have butchered it. I hope I am honoring it as well as I can. Uh, so I think of the first arrow is just the the stuff that happens to us in life, the unavoidable stuff, right? Uh, your kid gets a broken arm. You get a flat tire on the highway in the middle of West Virginia. And you have no idea how to, you know, get roadside assistance. Um, uh, ingrown toenails, rent bills you can't pay, terrible diagnoses, uh, storms that flood your town, whatever it is. The first arrows are the stuff that comes at us in life and, there's no way around it. It's just a global pandemic. That's a hell of an arrow, right? And we can't control it. It's going to happen. It's part of life. Okay. So I feel like a lot of parenting advice is really focused on how to avoid those first arrows. Babies that don't sleep at night, that's a hell of a sharp first arrow, right? That one hurts. Um, 
And yeah, sometimes there are strategies that can get babies to sleep through the night, but a lot of times there's not, right? So it's a, it's a pretty often unavoidable first arrow. And to all the sleep coaches out there, the work you do is important and it matters. And if you are having a hard time getting a baby sleep through the night, go talk to a sleep coach. They might help you. But, you know, sometimes babies just don't sleep. Okay, so we have these first arrows of life. We've got this arrow in our side, right? We've been shot by an arrow. It really hurts because getting shot by an arrow, I mean, I've never been shot by one, but I have to assume that getting a sharp arrow stuck in your side is really painful. So then in that moment, we have a choice for how we're going to respond. And the response can be, okay, I got shot by an arrow. This is really, really painful. What am I going to do about it? Or it can be some version of, oh my God, I suck. And this is horrible. And this is the worst situation ever. And I brought it upon myself because X, Y, and Z, because I forgot to send in the mail for the thing and I didn't answer the letter and I'm the one who wanted to drive through West Virginia in the middle of the night and everything is terrible and a better parent wouldn't have an ingrown toenail, right? And so those, Kale's laughing at me now, if you can hear this, folks, she's just laughing at me. And that's the other thing about first arrows, the older you get, the more you realize random things like your nails will grow back under your skin. It's really freaking painful. Okay. So the second arrow is about the blame and shame we put on ourselves when the first arrows happen right? And so instead of noticing that we've got this arrow in our side, it's really painful and either trying to take it out or asking for help or putting on a bandage or doing something kind to take care of ourselves. What we do is we beat ourselves up for it, right? We blame ourselves. We feel ashamed. We think about all the ways that we're the only person who's ever gotten shot by this arrow and it's our own damn fault. And if we were, you know, if we had actually started training for that damn marathon or if we had lost the weight or if we had, you know, been a better parent or if we hadn't lost our shit or if we had a better career, whatever it is, we wouldn't have gotten this arrow. And that's basically the equivalent of shoving a second arrow right into that wound, right? It doesn't help anything. It doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't help us heal any faster. It gives us zero insight about how to avoid the first arrow in the future if it's possible, which it often isn't because first arrows are, again, like gravity, they're just a part of life. All it does is make us feel worse, right? So in parenting, parenting is full of first arrows. That's just the deal. That's just life. And whether it's the normal day-to-day stuff of a kid who gets a fever and has to come home from school on a day when you've got an important work presentation and your partner, if you have one, is out of town, or whether it's, you know, getting a diagnosis, an ADHD diagnosis for your child, and then you have to figure out what it is, or it's just like having to make freaking dinner every freaking night. Like what a... It's like these stupid air. It's like death by a thousand teeny tiny dinner arrows. I say this as the person who doesn't make dinner in my house. My poor husband makes dinner. Anyways, the point is parenting is full of first arrows, but instead of being taught like this is normal, parenting is really legitimately hard any way you slice it. What we are told is there shouldn't be arrows in your parenting. And if there are, it's because you haven't worked hard enough. You haven't read the right parenting books. You haven't listened to the right parenting podcast. You haven't consulted the right expert. You haven't set up the right strategies, blah, 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 blah. And of course, we're left with the second arrow of being like, oh, that person wrote that book about how I can get my kids to eat vegetables and their kids are eating vegetables. So if my kid, you know, hasn't touched anything green in six months, it's clearly my fault that that it's my fault is the second arrow of parenting of life. And it's horrible. So what this book is all about, like I make no claims to first arrows. I can't help you with that stuff. I wish I could. I wish I could tell you how to parent a three-year-old during a pandemic. That's like just a the biggest, most awful 
arrow ever. I got nothing for that. But what I can do, what I hope to do with this book is help parents not shoot themselves with a second arrow. Let's not make it any worse. And self-compassion not only, you know, is instead of that second arrow, but it also is a way to start healing from the first arrow and moving on in a clearer, calmer, more confident and creative way. Absolutely. Okay. So before we get to some of the strategies of self-compassion, I wanted to actually spend a little time on the the freak out responses. You, you sort of have added to some of these commonly understood freak out responses of fight, flight, freeze. You've added flip out, fix, or fawn. Yeah. So let's talk about these and why they matter for self-compassion. I want to talk about all of them, but I have to say I'm especially interested in hearing you discuss the fawning response because I think this one is really under-discussed, but so common and again, especially among women and moms. Yeah. Okay. So let's just take a really quick step back and remember what fight or flight is and where it comes from. So this is a very um, old, old, old response among living beings, not just humans, right? When when we sense a threat, our nervous system kicks us into fight or flight response. And so it increases power and energy and blood, blood supply and all the things you need to the parts of your body and your brain that you need to either run away or fight. And so we all know that our muscles tense up and our heart rate starts, goes up and our breathing gets faster and our pupils dilate so we can like see the enemy. Um, what we often don't talk about is that the blood supply or the, I don't know if it's blood supply because I'm actually not a neuroscientist, the part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex that is responsible for kind of higher level thinking, like how to make boxed mac and cheese and how to do calculus and all that stuff, that part of our brain actually kind of shuts off. And it's our limbic system, which is the very old kind of lizard-like part of our brain in the very back above our brainstem. That's the part that starts running the show, right? Because we don't need to remember um, every Harry Potter book in order when we're being attacked by a bear. What we need to do is have this very quick instinctual response to either run away or uh, fight or freeze, as you know. Okay. So what this is, is this is a physical reaction to a physical threat. That's how it developed. So then we jump forward thousands of years. And all of a sudden, we're in a place where most of us, most of the time are not facing a physical threat. Yes, sometimes maybe there's a car that comes racing at us when we're crossing the street. Or if you're my kids saw a bear at summer camp, like there was like legit. Yeah, it's awesome. They ran away. They're fine. (laughs) But for most of us, the threats we face in life are not physical, right? They're financial, social, emotional, like, oh, that parent is clearly talking shit about me across the playground and I thought we were friends and what are they saying? And that on some level still triggers this fight, flight or freeze response, right? And so we still have this very physical response, but I think, I think it's actually coming out in more ways than just like, you know, when I see parents talking shit about me on the playground, I don't usually either run away or just freeze in place or go up and punch them in the face. I've actually never done any of those things. Um, I have been known to run away from my kids and hide in the bathroom with chocolate, but that's different. That is different. Okay. So I think we also do um, what I refer to as flip out, fix or fawn. So flipping out is just kind of losing our shit. And it's, I guess you could say it's a subset of fighting, but I don't actually think about it as fighting. I think about it as sort of like becoming emotionally unhinged. Um, And then fixing is like leaping into this mode of like, what is the problem and how am I going to fix it? And becomes this very 
kind of knee-jerk, obsessive, instinctual, almost like you can't think clearly. You're just, you know, my husband's back went out and I was like, I need to find the physical therapist that's going to fix this for him. And it was this very instinctual, like, I need to fix this problem, right? And there is for sure this higher level thinking of like, how am I going to find a physical therapist for him and whatever, but it's still kind of not a really thoughtful thing. It's definitely a reactive thing. And I think that's like where like looking for all the experts and reading all the books and finding the podcast that has the answer. And we can just sort of find ourselves in this treadmill of like, I'm looking for the answer. There needs to be an answer. And we just feel like we're not getting any but we can't find a way to get off the treadmill and do something that feels more productive. That is 100% accurate. 100%. And I think every once in a while, there is a parenting problem we can actually fix. But the majority of these problems that really trigger the crap out of us on this deep level, they're not really fixable. They're kind of, you kind of got to just muddle through them as best you can, right? So, but let's also talk about fawning. So, I think fawning is like, you know, the bear is coming at you. And if you really feel like he's going to outrun you and you don't feel comfortable, you can beat up a bear. Then you start fawning over him. Like you try to make him feel better. You try to develop a relationship with him and tell him all the ways he's great and calm him down and make everybody else happy. Make the bear happy. And I think that's a thing that we parents often do a lot. Um, maybe sometimes with our parenting friends, but really with our children. Because so often our children are the source of this threat. And again, I'm using the word air quotes because in the vast majority of cases, our kids don't actually threaten us. Um, But there is something about really difficult parenting moments that for some of us feel threatening and trigger this response even if we don't actively realize it. And whether it's because it feels like a threat to our identity as a good parent, or it's triggering some really deep old memories from our childhood, and even though the last time you were in this moment, you were the child, it doesn't matter. It's still a a painful, tricky, maybe even traumatic moment between a parent and a child, and now you're in it again. And so on a deep level, there's something really triggering and rough about that moment, and some part of our old, old brain and our nervous system responds to it as if we're a threat. And I have seen parents and I myself have said some version of, how can I make you happy? What do you need? How do I make this better? How do I fix the problem? And again, there's a, there's a little bit of a blending with fixing here too. Of course, it's not super straightforward, but there is this sense of, if I can just make you happy, everything else will be better. And of course, Show me a parent on the planet who hasn't felt this way. We all have. And the problem with it is that when we think we have to be happy to be a good parent, that's a setup for failure because nobody's happy all the time. It's just not possible. And no matter how many self-help books you read on happiness, um, it's just not human nature. It's, It's not the way we're wired. It's not the way the world works. And so thinking that you have to be happy to be a successful parent or that your child has to be happy to be a successful parent is a total setup for failure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Yeah. I love that you explicitly write in your book that our job as parents is not to get our kids to feel better. That is not the job. (laughs) It's it's not possible. I mean, think about it. Like, yeah, if I said to you, I have $500,000 and if if you can just be happy and 100% happy, nothing but happy for the next five minutes, I will give you $500,000. And I know I've got all sorts of sensors. I know what's going on in your brain. I know what's going on in your body. And I would know that for a millisecond, you were worried and you don't get the money. We cannot control our feelings. We cannot force ourselves to feel a certain way. And the same is true for our children and everyone else in our lives. It's just not how feelings work. Right. And so that means that if your kid isn't feeling good, that doesn't, that's no indication that you're a good or bad parent. It's just, it's just an indication that they're human and alive. Right. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Yes, that is true. All right. So now let's talk a little bit about what self-compassion is. So you break it down into four unique practices. Maybe it would just be helpful to kind of list the practices and then we can dive in a little more deeply to a few of them. Absolutely. So the thing that's cool about self-compassion is it's actually a practice. Like it is a thing you can do and get better at. The trick, of course, is that you actually have to do it. You can't just think about it, which stinks because I love sitting around thinking about stuff. It's so much easier than actually doing it. But okay, so the four practices are, are noticing. We just have to notice our own suffering. Notice when we're having a hard time. Uh, connection, which I see as the antidote to shame. And shame is something so much of us walk around with about parenting, about life all the time. Connection is the antidote. We'll talk about what you can connect to and how. Curiosity. This is one that we think about like, oh, isn't it nice when our kids are curious about, you know, the flower, as long as they're not curious for too long, because then I get bored. But curiosity, I think is this thing that we've somehow relegated to like the world of children and scientists or something, and the rest of us don't have time for this crap. But what I will tell you is curiosity is the antidote to judgment. So many of us parents jump straight to judgment about ourselves, about other parents, about strangers that we know nothing about, but we feel totally comfortable like commenting on their parenting on social media. And curiosity is the antidote to that. And then the last one is kindness, which is the antidote to contempt. And I see so many parents treating themselves with contempt. Um, And so what we have is noticing connection, curiosity, and kindness. Yeah. And they, so on the face of it, they all seem so simple, but the, the reality, and I love how you dive into your book, is that on the ground, it's hard to do. So let's just start with noticing. Why is it so dang important and why is it so hard to do? Oh my gosh, noticing. Um, look, all of these practices are incredibly simple and they're so not easy, right? Important distinction. If I could write an entire book about noticing that a publisher would actually want to buy and publish, I would do that. So if you're a publisher who wants to buy my book about noticing, let's talk. Um, Look, it is the key to everything, I feel like, because it is that moment when we go from being completely lost in the shitstorm and like feeling awful about how bad everything is and wondering how the hell we're going to fix it and like feeling frustrated, our partner for leaving their dishes in the sink and our kid, why won't they just put their damn shoes on the first time we act and life is like, where's the book that's going to fix it all? And then we switch to this place of being like, oh, here I am. And this is what's going on. Like, okay, everything's a little chaotic right now. And and that's okay. It's like taking a step back and actually taking in the scene rather than being stuck in the middle of it. And look, noticing, I think most people think that noticing is this amazing thing when it actually happens, right? Oh, I noticed that 
I left my phone on the airplane at the very last minute and I ran back on to get it and thank God I noticed. Or I noticed my kid was, my toddler was about to step down off the top of the stairs and thank God I noticed and I I grabbed them. But I I think we think of it as this thing that it's like unpredictable and we never know if we're going to notice at the right moment or not. We never know if we're going to snap out of our own little brain ramblings and come back to reality with awareness. We just don't know. And the truth is that noticing here we go again. It's a practice that you can get better at. And so this is the part where I start talking about the stuff that people don't want to hear about, like mindfulness and meditation. But meditation, look, meditation is many, many things. And it's it's an amazing practice on many levels. But on, on a most really basic fundamental level, it is a practice of noticing. And you sit there and you decide you're going to count your breaths and then you get like maybe one and a half breaths in if you're lucky. And then you're like, whatever happened to that ex-boyfriend who was such a sleaze? And, you know, should I start planning a vacation for next year? Is COVID still going to be around? And do I really need to splint my kid's broken finger? Is that like a thing you just leave alone? Can you tape it? Or do you have to go to the doctor? And how am I supposed to get a doctor's appointment in the American medical system? So freaking broken whatever your brain goes off wherever it goes and then all of a sudden you notice it and you go oh i'm lost in my thinking and i was actually trying to count my breaths so i'm going to come back to my breaths and a lot of people think common misconception about meditation is that um when your brain wanders you failed and no like when your brain wanders you're just doing what you're supposed to do it's the moment you notice that that's the practice, right? The noticing and making the choice to do something differently is the practice. And so the analogy I use is like, okay, let's say you go to the gym and you lift up the weight, okay? Because you're you're lifting weights and you lift up the weight and then you go, oh, this is like heavy. I'm going to put it down for a second. So at that point, do you say, oh, I failed at the gym because I put the weight down? No, you pick it up again, right? And you do like five reps. And so noticing is just the reps, right? That's the thing you're doing. But the point is, the better we get at noticing, the better we, the more likely we will be to noticing when we are shitting all over ourselves. Yeah. And it is a thing that for so many parents has become like the air we breathe, that we don't even notice when we're doing it, but it's yeah. still there. It still impacts how we think of ourselves as parents. It still impacts how we treat ourselves, how we engage with our children. And so when you can start to notice, oh, I just called myself a shitty parent again, that's the moment where you can choose to do something differently. But if you don't ever notice you're doing it, you can't choose to change. What's your favorite practice for noticing? What's the one that you use in your life? Um. Gosh, that's such a good question. So for sure, meditation. And how do you meditate? I I meditate out on walks because sitting down or laying, okay, if I try to sit down, I don't know, I just feel very twitchy. And I guess if I was like more hardcore, I would work through the twitchiness, but I'm not that hardcore. And I, I, I just, I don't know, I get too bored. I can't handle it. Um, And if I lay down, I fall asleep. So I go for walks and I count my steps. Um, and so I like literally one to eight, cause that's about as high as I can count without losing track at any given time. And I still mostly lose track then. And that's a noticing practice for me. Um, I also will tell you that when I am neck deep in the chaos, right, I'm exhausted and I'm overwhelmed and I have too much going on and I'm likely to notice what I do is narrate what I'm doing. So if I'm making dinner or cooking, cleaning up the kitchen or whatever it is, and I'm totally exhausted and overwhelmed, I will just say to myself, okay, now I'm picking up the broom and now I'm sweeping the floor 
or, you know, now I'm washing the dishes or whatever. And it sounds kind of ridiculous, but it keeps my brain and my body to the best extent that I'm able on the same page. Because where we get really off track, I think often is when our body's doing one thing and our brain is doing another thing. And somehow that just makes it really hard to notice. So narrating either out loud or to myself is a powerful noticing practice for me because all of a sudden, if the narration stops, I know my brain has gone somewhere unhelpful. Yeah. And that's when I need to kind of get it back on track. Um, Yeah. So those are kind of my two noticing practices. Well, I love that because it's not like you have to fit in an hour of meditation. It's just if you're on a walk, count your steps. If you're mopping the floor, describe to yourself that you're mopping the floor. And it it really keeps you noticing what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll give an example of myself. I had a really exhausting week last week. It was one of those weeks where it was not enough childcare and I had a ton of work demands and my partner had a ton of work demands. And so it was, you know, on my own with the kids after my long work day. And by Friday, Friday is my long clinical day. I was just wiped and I was, I was not in a good space and I was just feeling angry and put out by everybody. I got home. My partner said something to me. I don't even remember what, but I was angry. I went upstairs and I slammed the door and I, I, I took a moment because I've been practicing this for a while now and I just felt my feet on the floor. I was like, okay, just feel your feet, feel your feet. And the only thing I could come to is I'm not good. I'm not good right now. And so what I did was that noticing was really important. I'm not even sure it was the quote unquote right decision, but I took myself to a movie. I like couldn't be around the people. I needed to be away. I needed to just decompress. And I, I was able to do that because my partner was home with the kids. But it really required me just feeling my feet for a moment and recognizing like I'm not I'm not good. I'm not good to be around anybody right now and, and to sort of um, make my escape. And I think sometimes that brief pause of just recognizing like where am I at can be really hard to do because we're sort of all up in the flurry of the feelings and the thoughts that are just spinning out of control. And it's the practice that gives you the power. Oh my gosh. First of all, you just said so many things. I feel like I want to write, it's the practice that gives you the power and like tattoo that backwards on my forehead. So I see it in the mirror every single day. That is freaking brilliant. Um, Also, I think taking yourself to every, every, I, I have goosebumps. Yeah. Al, because I'm such a nerd about this stuff that like, I literally get tingly flesh. That sounded really inappropriate. I'm sorry. <laughs> Everything about that was so beautiful. Like you said to yourself, I'm not good right now. And you didn't mean I'm bad. You just meant I'm in a bad space in this moment and I don't have anything to offer anybody. And that can be such a painful thing to acknowledge because really what most of us think is the minute we get home from work, we should be super mom and connecting with our kids. We haven't seen all day and making dinner and playing games and doing all these things that we have zero, zero energy to do. Right. And so you just said, like, you just acknowledged reality and sometimes reality really, really sucks and we don't want to acknowledge it, but it's a game changer when we do. So you acknowledged reality And then you had this moment where you said, I don't know if it was conscious or not, what do I need? Oh my gosh, what could be more compassionate than asking yourself what you need? This is the curiosity piece, right? And taking it seriously. Yeah. So you had this moment, excuse me, while I friendsplain to you exactly what just (laughs) happened for yourself. Okay, I'm actually like friendsplaining to our listeners, but bear with me. Where you, you 
you asked yourself what you needed, you found an answer, you listened to it, and then thanks to the support of your partner um, and movie theaters everywhere, you gave yourself this thing you needed. I just think it's brilliant, and I wish we had the ability to provide childcare and a free movie ticket to every parent on the planet who needs it. Oh, yeah. I just think it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and I will say, too, that a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have known to do any of that. And I'll just repeat that the, the power is really in the practice because it was knowing that I really needed to take myself seriously, that if I didn't, things were going to get worse, not better. And having communicated that in other conversations with my partner, that there are times that I need to sort of recalibrate in order to be in a place where I am comfortable and and appropriate to be around other people. So, you know, it it really has taken me a while to develop that kind of practice. And it's not easy even now, but I will say that the kinds of practices that are involved in self-compassion practice are exactly what helped me to do that. And I did um, realize the next day was Saturday. And every time I sat down, I would fall asleep. Like I was really tired. Yeah. And it wasn't until that night that it hit me how tired I was because it was just such a go, go, go week. And I think parenting is like that. There's so many demands that we often don't give ourselves a moment to kind of check in with where we're at until it can feel almost too late. But I, I just love that the, the example we're starting out with about self-compassion is a mom taking herself to the movies. because, And it doesn't always have to be that. And sometimes it can't be that. Um, but if that's what you needed in that moment, that is such a deep act of self-compassion. I love it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about connection because that's another important element to the practice of self-compassion. And I'm curious more generally what your connection, your favorite connection practices are. But I also wanted to ask this specific question, which is what do we do when we are dying to connect, but we're terrified of the judgment that might come if we out ourselves about what's really going on with us? Like I I wouldn't have wanted to tell a friend I was about to hit my wall on a Friday with my beautiful three kids and spouse who were waiting at home for me. Like that's embarrassing. I just outed myself to the entire podcast audience, but you know, it, it can feel scary. Oh my gosh. So scary. So, so scary. So let's, let's back up and talk about what I mean when I'm saying connection. So I, I think of three different sort of um, ways to connect in these really hard moments. One is connecting back to the present moment, which is the thing you did so beautifully when you went in your room and felt your feet on the floor, right? Because in those moments of blame and shame and, and just when we're throwing ourselves under the bus and judging the shit out of ourselves for everything we're doing, Coming back to the present moment is this really powerful way to kind of get out of that that horrible tornado in our brains, right? And so um, I I love the feet on the floor. I also tend to put my hands on the counter. There's something about kind of feeling that firm, hard, smooth surface under my hands that kind of brings me back to the present moment. I often take a few deep breaths and say, what is actually happening right now, right? Not what might happen or what happened in the past. But what is actually happening right now? And sometimes when I look around, I'm like, okay, what is actually happening is like my girls are on the crowd couch and they're cranky and my husband is doing whatever and I'm sitting here in a swirl of like fear and worry and anxiety and self-contempt and that's what's happening. It's just what's happening. And there is something about taking yourself again out of the chaos of crappy memories and anxieties about the future and coming back to like 
okay, what is happening right now in this present moment? So one of the most powerful connection practices is finding a way to come back and say, like, just be in the present and focus your attention on the things that are actually happening right now in your space that you can see and feel and hear and taste and touch, right? Um, Another powerful connection practice is connecting with what Kristen Neff calls common humanity. And this is, it's so, so simple and it's so powerful. Just reminding yourself that you are not alone, right? That, you know, one of the most powerful things I say to myself when things get really hard is I, I remind myself, parenting is hard for everyone. And oh my gosh, it's so easy to forget that, right? I've watched a reality show about um, parents who have like, I don't know, 13, 18 kids. I don't know how many kids, so many kids. And I'm like (laughs) obsessed with this reality show. And not once in the show do they lose their temper with their children. Not once. And we're led to believe that somehow that's normal or even possible. And yet when we watch this stuff and even people like me who can list off 87 reasons why I shouldn't watch it, I totally watch it, right? I know it's not true. I know it's not an accurate depiction of this family. And yet there is some part of my brain that gets sucked into believing that parenting is easy for some people, that there are some people who never lose their temper with their kids, that there are some families where their kids eat everything on their plate at every meal, right? That like I let somehow my brain like believes that. And so I need to remind myself on a regular basis that parenting is hard for everyone. It is hard for everyone. Right. Mm -hmm. So that is this connecting with common humanity. I am not alone in my suffering and my struggling. Yeah. Um, But then the third one is connecting with what I like to call a trusted adult. Right. These are, that's a phrase we clinicians like to use with kids. Go find a trusted adult. Okay. Let's use it with adults too. Like we need other trusted adults. And whether it's a therapist, which by the way, just to reiterate, not only I have been on both sides of the couch right? I have been a therapist and I have gotten so much support and wisdom and advice and connection from my own therapy that I have been in as a client. So, um, but also is it your rabbi or priest or minister or imam? Is it um, your children's treaters, teachers, uh, pediatricians, therapists, whatever, or is it your friends? And yeah, look, you raised such an important point in your question. How do we be vulnerable with people when we don't know what we're going to get back from them, when we don't know if we can trust them not to judge us. So first of all, this is one of the most important reasons for self-compassion, because how can we be vulnerable for ourselves with ourselves? How can we be honest with ourselves about our situations if we don't trust what we're going to get back from ourselves? If we think that the minute we're vulnerable, all we're going to hear from ourselves is what a crap human being we are, we're not going to be honest about what we're struggling with. And if we're not honest about what we're struggling with, we can't start to change or accept or fix it or whatever we need to do with it. So that's one piece. But the second piece is how do we be vulnerable with someone else if we don't know if we can trust them? Well, my wish for every parent on the planet is that they have at least one friend that they can invite over and not have to clean up their house. And I mean that both literally and metaphorically, like who is the friend that when they ring the doorbell and you know that there's like your kids dirty underwear hanging over the back of the couch because God knows why, but like for some reason they left their freaking dirty underwear on the back of the couch and you've got dirty dishes and and plates all over the place and the house is a freaking wreck. Who is that friend that you can invite over and not have to tidy the house and not have to tidy your house, right? So I wish that, and by your house, that's why I'm speaking metaphorically, like our internal house, right? (laughs) So (laughs) I wish that every parent had at least one friend like that, but I know that we don't all have that, right? 
And so what I would say to parents is you don't have to invite everybody into your house every time. Like if you're looking for ways to make these connections, can you dip your toe in the water of vulnerability a little bit and see what happens? So you don't have to like show up at the playground and be like, my family is a mess and I'm a shit show and I don't know anybody and this is falling apart. But like, that's a lot for people to take in. But can you say like, yeah, we're having a rough parenting day and see how people respond. And if they respond with curiosity and connection and compassion, well, maybe you can hang out near that pond a little longer. But if they respond with like changing the subject or walking away or some obnoxious comment or like, oh, my kid's so amazing. They learned to walk when they were eight months old. That's not your pond. Go find someplace else to swim. You know what I'm saying? And the other thing I would say is, and I actually write about this a lot in, the, in How to Stop Losing Your Shit, notice how you feel when you are hanging out with people. So if you hang out with other parents and you come away from that play date or lunch date or softball game or whatever it is, judging yourself and feeling worse and feeling stuck and feeling like you're screwing up parenting, like notice those feelings and believe them. And maybe that's not the place where you're going to be vulnerable. But if you come away from hanging out with these folks and you feel calm and happy and connected and maybe a little bit lighter, maybe a little more empowered, just like better, that's your crew. Go hang out with them some more, but trust your feelings. Notice how you feel. Yeah. And there's the noticing and and the curiosity. So I want to talk a little bit about curiosity next, because I think, you know, really just being curious about what your internal experience is like, you know, when you're trying to connect. I did want to ask, though, you know, there's such a temptation when we're being curious and the sort of response to our curiosity is that we're not feeling well, we're not doing well to drop into fix it mode, which of course is not where we necessarily want to go with self-compassion. So how do you sort of separate out being curious from the impulse to fix it? Yeah. Oh, cause look, I'm a fixer. This is like my go-to thing. I love it. Love it. And there are times, you know, for example, when I finally got a little curious about why I was losing my shit with my kids all the time and I got curious about how I could fix this, that brought me to the mindfulness courses that changed my life. So sometimes fixing is super useful. And so it is a fine line. It's not always easy to tell, but I think when we drop into fix it mode, that's a good sign that we've immediately judged ourselves for whatever we found. We have found ourselves to be wanting or broken and in need of fixing. And that's not what I'm going for with the curiosity piece. I'm more interested in Let's imagine, I want you to think about you being the listener, to think about a trusted adult in your life, anyone, and maybe it's a friend, maybe it's someone who's still in your life that you see on a regular basis, or maybe it's someone you haven't seen in many years or they've passed away. Maybe it was a grandparent or an aunt and uncle or a childhood friend. Imagine someone that you could sit on a couch with and tell them all the horrible things that are happening in your life. And they ask some questions and they sit and listen and they don't judge you and they don't make weird little eyebrow faces at you and they don't tisk tisk at you. And maybe they ask some questions and then they just keep sitting with you and they don't offer suggestions. They just, maybe they say, yeah, it's really awful. And, or they say that was hard for me too. Maybe they even share a story that was hard for them in a way that's connecting and not, not luxury or judgy or grandparents splainy or whatever. Um, that's the kind of curiosity I'm going for, right? The like, making space to be interested in. And when you are with a person who is truly curious about your experience, 
you know they're okay with whatever the answer is, right? And it's really scary to share this stuff sometimes because the fear is, what if what if I'm actually saying something to this therapist that they've never heard before? P.S. We have heard it before. But what <laughs> if I'm saying something to this therapist that they've never heard before and it's going to freak them out and they're going to think I'm a crazy psychopath and they're like going to tell me that there's no solution for my problems, right? So that anxiety is very real for many of us when we share. And maybe on a lesser level, what if I share this with another parent, they're going to think I'm a horrible parent, right? So that anxiety is very real. And when we find a person, the, the, the goal in life is, you know, if you've ever had that experience of sitting with that person where you know you could say anything and they weren't going to judge you, it's a game changer. It's life changing. It's incredible. But if you haven't had it, or even if you had, can you be that person for yourself? Can you ask yourself, what am I struggling with? What am I scared of? What feels so hard for me? And then listen to the answer and not judge yourself. Really, right? You, you know, you in that moment when you came home and you were like, what do I need? And somehow the answer was, I need to get away. I need to be alone in a dark room with an entertaining movie. I am hoping, and this is what I was listening for in the story that I was so glad not to hear it doesn't sound like you said to yourself, oh my God, Yael, you're such a shit parent. Like you've been at work all day and now you just want to get away from your kids even more. You didn't say that. And I'm so glad you didn't because being curious and then listening to our response and taking it seriously. And sometimes the serious listening does lead to fixing behaviors, right? It does. Like if you listen to yourself and thought, I can't do this. I cannot be at work all day long and then come home and be attentive for my kids. And, you know, you mentioned that you had not great childcare last week. Maybe the answer is, you know, maybe you do come up with some fixes that it's like, I need more childcare, I need less work or whatever it may be. But there has to be that, I think the important part is that space of acknowledgement, of hearing, this is what is real and true for me, and it's okay. As opposed to, oh shit, I'm broken, how do I fix it? Yeah. Those are two really different perspectives. Yeah. It kind of reminds me. So I do a lot of couples therapy and I'm often giving communication skills training to people and we separate out communication into discussion versus problem solving. And I always tell people to spend a lot of time in discussion. And if there needs to be problem solving, that's totally fine. But you first need to get through a lot of discussion and really deeply understand and feel understood before you get to problem solving. And it's in part because then you can solve the problem more effectively because you know what the problem is. If you don't spend enough time being curious and and really understanding what's at the root of it all, then how can you be effective in your problem solving? The other part of it is there's just something so healing about being seen by yourself or somebody else. And sometimes that is all we need. I know for me, when I call a really good friend and I just vent, that's just what I need often. You know, I don't need to be fixed. I just need to be heard and seen and loved for oh. where I am. Oh, I just want to reach the <laughs> computer and hug you in a moment. It's, it's all so true. And what I, what I say to people all the time is that feelings need to be felt, not fixed, right? There may be problems out in the world that need to be fixed or not, but our feelings need to be felt. And when we can give ourselves that moment to actually get curious about what we're feeling and feel them, often that's the fix right there. Like that's what we needed to feel better. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm really sad or upset or frustrated or angry or confused or overwhelmed by this problem. 
But now that I've gotten curious and understood what's beneath the feelings, now I can figure out how to respond to it. And I think, you know, an example from parenting is that I think I write about in the book, but I was out with my my daughter once when she was like three or four and we were at some, you know, community fair and she was being all sweet and cute. And we were paying like 10 bucks for the arrow to throw out the balloon to win the 30, 30 set present or whatever. Great day. And then all of a sudden she starts losing her shit and she's like melting down and going boneless on the sidewalk and screaming about everything. And all I'm thinking is this ungrateful little jerk. We spent all day at this fair and wasted all our money and all she's doing crying. I was judging her. I was judging her. I was judging myself. Like I am spoiling this child and she doesn't appreciate me. So clearly I'm being a shit parent. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to be curious. And I was like, what is happening here? And in that moment of curiosity, I realized we forgot to give her lunch. We were having so much fun at this fair that we totally forgot to feed her. And kids that little get so caught up and distracted. I mean, we all do that they forget to tell you they're hungry if they even notice. And my kid, like me, we come from a long tradition of people who get hangry and she lost it because she was hungry. It wasn't because she was ungrateful. It wasn't because she's a jerk of a kid or going to grow up to be a narcissist or whatever it is. She was hungry. And when we went and got her food, she was fine and we had a great day. But I had to switch from a mindset of judgment to curiosity before I could figure out what was going on. And so it's the same for us, right? When we're having a horrible moment, when we've made a mistake, instead of judging ourselves, oh, you're such a terrible person, a terrible parent, blah, 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 blah. Can we switch it to, hey, what's what's going on right now? And what do you need, right? That's like this curious place. And maybe the answer is, I don't freaking know. Like, I think for a lot of parents who are struggling during the pandemic, and we still are, we try to get at the root of like, what do I need? I don't know what I need. I have no idea what will make this better. I don't know. But I know at least I'm having a hard time. And even just acknowledging that is is very calming and empowering in a weird way. Yeah, I think it is. And and then we sort of get to, to the kindness component. And one thing that you and I haven't talked too much about, but hopefully is implicit in, in all the different components of self-compassion that we're talking about is that we're modeling these things for our kids. You know, when we get curious, when we connect, when we notice, those are things that our kids are witnessing. And kindness is that too. You know, when we make a mistake and are beating ourselves up, we're teaching our kids that that's how we respond to mistakes. And we're also kind of teaching them that making mistakes is not is not okay in our minds. And so when we instead respond with kindness, it really helps our kids to respond differently. And and I know that this is so, this was an element that was consistent throughout your book that, that, that showing our kids these practices of self-compassion, it's not just good for us to be better parents, it's good for them. Oh, totally. And I, I will, look, I can't talk to my kids about self-compassion because if I try to talk to them about it, you know, they roll their eyes and like, oh, this is so boring. And they don't want to hear about it from me because I'm their parent and they don't want to hear anything from me, which is fine, whatever. So my best bet is to model it, right? All I can do at this point, because I have a 12 and a 13 year old, is 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 do my best to live this for them. And that doesn't mean I get it perfect at every moment, but I keep trying, right? And so, yeah, like, and, and there was a moment when I was having a really hard day and I made a mistake and my daughter looked at me and she just goes, mom, it's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. And I was like, nailed it. What? <laughs> but I had a moment and I felt much better. Um, here's how I think about 
kindness because it's so important, right? I think about kindness as treating ourselves the way a really good friend who loves us so much would treat us. So um, let's say a friend calls you, right? They're having a horrible time. Maybe their their dishwasher's broken and um, it's the middle of a heat wave and they're exhausted and overwhelmed at work and they they just got this diagnosis about their kid that their kid has a learning disability and they they are totally overwhelmed with how to handle this. So you go over to cheer them up. Would you like immediately sit down and be like, yeah, and oh my God, your house is a mess. That really sucks. And oh, the system for dealing with learning disabilities really sucks. It's so hard. And if you screw this up, your kid is going to suffer for life. Like it's going to impact their ability to get into college and they'll probably never have a great career. Like, would you say all that to your friend? That is a rhetorical question. No, you would not. (laughs) And if you would, then we have other issues to talk about. The point is you would sit down and you would say to them, yeah, this is really hard, but like you'll get through it. And how can I help? And can I make you a cup of coffee? And can we sit down together for a moment? And, you know, a lot of parents dealing with learning disabilities, and this is a thing you can handle. And like, you would just be with them, right? You wouldn't trot out a laundry list of things they need to do. And you wouldn't judge them. And you wouldn't tell them they're a shit parent for not catching it earlier. So when I think about the kindness of self-compassion, I'm thinking about treating ourselves the way that we would treat a really, really good friend or that our really good friends treat us. And a lot of this has to do with self-talk, right? The way we talk to ourselves. And I think about this as speaking of modeling things for our children, kind self-talk is a language that most of us never grew up speaking. And so the first time we try to speak it, it's weird. Like if any any of the listeners out there have ever um, tried to learn a new language, not, not, you know, when you're a kid and you grow up bilingual, but I'm talking about later in life, in high school, college, beyond. It's hard. Like, you struggle to remember the word, and then when it comes, like, it feels weird in your mouth, and then you're not quite sure if you're saying them right. That is literally how I felt when I first started trying to practice kind self-talk. I was like, what am I supposed to say to myself? Like, you're a good person? That feels weird. Like, what the hell? Who says that? And so what I have learned is that the and look, we know, most of us just never learned this language from our parents. And let's not blame our parents. They never learned it from their parents and they never learned it from their parents. And people just never talked about it. It wasn't a, it wasn't a language we spoke for lots of evolutionary reasons that we don't need to go into now, but are in the book, right? Um, but we can learn to speak this language. So how do we learn to speak it? The same way you learn to speak any language. You hang out with native speakers, right? These are the people who are going to talk to you and treat you with compassion. You repeat words over and over again, even if they feel weird, right? And so there's all sorts of loving kindness meditations. You can make up your own phrases. I offer a bunch of them in the book. Um, And you keep practicing until eventually you're standing at your kitchen counter and all of a sudden you think, oh, I'm a pretty good mom. And then you drop a knife. Don't drop the knife. That's not not part of the practice. Um, But Sharon Salzberg, who's one of my favorite mindfulness meditation teachers, and she is a a wizard, a wise, wise wizard about self-compassion talks about loving kindness meditations and treating yourself with loving kindness is absolutely an act of uh, compassion. And, and these meditations, you're literally just repeating these phrases to yourself. And, and mine are, may I be happy? May I be healthy? May I be safe? May I live with ease? And Sharon Salzberg talks about just walking down the street, sort of saying to yourself, happy, healthy, safe, live with ease. And oh my gosh, on the one hand, cheesy as hell, right? <laughs> on the other hand, so much better than being like, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, which is like the drumbeat that so many of us walk to. Yeah. So again, self-compassion and kind self-talk 
is just a language we're learning. That's all. And eventually you will become fluent in this language. Yeah. If you practice, if you practice, (laughs) here's my little notepad. I'm showing it up to you. I wrote down practice (laughs) gives you power because I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is the mantra people. Listen to Elle. She's very wise. I think you are wise. Carla, you are an absolute treasure. I'm so glad that you and your books are in this world, bringing your unique combination of snark and sagacity to parents. (laughs) What does sagacity mean? That's such a good word. What does that mean? I know it's in it's it's alliteration too. I play. I love it. alliteration. So wait, I need another S word besides shit. What does sagacity mean? It's wisdom. It's you know sage <gasps> sagacity. I okay. by the way, I have a terrible vocabulary. So this I oh my god, that's my new favorite word. <sighs> I love that you used bunker balls. Do you listen to um, Wow in the World? Yes, I love Wow in the World. Wait, you have to leave this part in the podcast, y'all. It's important. If you are a parent who's looking for a podcast for your children and yourself that you can all enjoy. Wow in the world is amazing. Oh, it's so good. They're funny. They're amazing. Okay. Your advice, your books are evidence-backed, but it's so dang funny that readers won't even realize it. So I highly recommend anything written by Carla. And then where else should people go to get more from you? They can go to my website, CarlaNomberg.com. All right. And we'll link to it in our show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time, Carla. Thank you, Yael. And thank you for everything you and your podcast are putting out into the world. It's so wise and important and sagacious. See what I did there? Hey, Psychologists Off The Clock listeners. I'm going to guess that if you are listening to this episode, that you love to geek out about books in psychology. So if you are a fellow book nerd like Yale and I, and all of the people around you are tired of you talking about books, then you can join us once a month to really take a deep dive into the the books that we're going to be reading together. So if you want to join us, all you have to do is send an email with the subject heading RSVP to offtheclockpsych at gmail.com and we'll send you information for upcoming meetings of the book club. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.